Good morning, Connection Fellowship. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's wonderful to be here. All right. Did you know that our youth group is starting back this week? August the 16th. The hiatus is over. Time to get back in the swing of things. And we had a great time this past Wednesday hanging out for our back-to-school bash. And as you can see, there are some pictures. People having fun in the bouncy house. That's dangerous, I'm telling you. It just scares me. The bouncy house scares me. It's a good thing old men aren't allowed to play on those things. I'm delaying so you can see all the slides. Oh, snow cones. That's a good pose, Anna. I like that. <laughs> I would forget that too. <laughs> anyway, all right, tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to have our next family meeting, worship time. Uh, we'll be catching up on a few matters of business, and then we're going to be singing some worship songs. It was a great time in June. It'll be a greater time tonight. So be here. At what time? Five. Five. That's right. Five. Everybody all together. Five. There we go. All right. And, oh, and by the way, there will be no child care, which reminds me of my next announcement. We could use more volunteers in the children's ministry. If you love kids, we'd love to have you. If you tolerate kids, we'd love to have you. So anyway, um, so think about that, pray about it, volunteer for it, you'll be blessed. So, and I'm trying. I'm operating my phone left-handed. It, you know, it's it's awkward. It's very very awkward. So, please be there. We go. And now I would like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the streets. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, 
It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You remind us of your justice. Lord, without your grace, we would be doomed. Without your love, we would be nothing. Without your guidance, we would be lost. Lord, I just uh, I pray that you'd be here with us today. Lord, I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. Lord, that you would be glorified and your name would be made famous. Lord, that hearts would be open to you. And Lord, that uh, your kingdom would be expanded. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with us. And Lord, we would be obedient to your word. We'd be obedient to your call. And we would do what you want us to do. And Lord, we would do it gladly. We would do it with joy. And Lord, I just thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. morning. As we get started, if, uh, if you are willing, think of your favorite things about God. And then as you're thinking about that, if anyone is willing to do so, just shout some of those out. We can all think together on who he is. Amen. Our Father, our refuge, our strength. He's holy. He's our Savior. He's our provider. We can keep going and going. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. So as we begin this morning, let's worship the one who is all these things, who alone is all these things. Let's worship God for his greatness. 
All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let all things their Creator bless. And worship Him in humbleness. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son. And praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. All the redeemed washed by His blood. Come and rejoice in His great love. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on Him. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. He shall return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to say, Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Then who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Alleluia. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. 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 Amen. 
That is our great God, worthy of all praise from all creatures. And yet, as, as we're going to look at this morning with starting in Zechariah, the need for rebuilt hearts, we don't always worship God as he deserves. We don't always live lives fueled by his spirit for his glory. So as we think through that, let's take a moment again to recite this prayer of, of confession and need that we've read before together that will be on the screen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you by, in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And to all those who confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can say that his grace is truly amazing. sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed my chains are gone I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. 
The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing soon dissolve like snow the sun forbear to shine but God who called me here below will be forever mine he will be God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. And when we've been there 10,000 years, Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, 
amazing grace. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Rescues us from the depths of our sin. Rescues us from the pain of the curse. And we have the promise of life forever with you that you will be with us, with your people forever. Heaven is a joy, but you are the dream. You are the hope. You are the one who will make it worth it for eternity. Not just that we get to live, but that we get to be with you. The one who saved us, the one who loves us, the one who created us. Help us that we would rejoice in you. Help us that we would not be caught in the first half of Psalm 73 where we envy the wicked, but instead that we would be rejoicing in the second half where we recognize your justice and recognize your grace and the salvation you bring. Even today, as we listen to the sermon, would you speak to us in these ways? Would you build us up that we would love the world around us and live to spread the gospel and to honor your name? In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, family. How's everybody doing today? Um, our God is a God of new beginnings, amen? All right, his mercies are new every morning. Uh, he gives us chance upon chance um, to do it over. He forgives us of our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And what a beautiful thing that we can start over afresh every day. This is a cool time of year because in, in some ways it's, it's kind of like the second spring because a lot of things are starting up, things are, are fresh, kids are starting a new school year, um, we're starting a new sermon series this week, um, a lot of folks have taken a hiatus from uh, pods for the summer and uh, kind of a new season of pods is starting up, so it's a cool time, it's a time of, um, of hope and expectations that Things will be better this, this time around, that there's a chance to uh, maybe change things that weren't working or to uh, recommit on what was working. It's a chance for God to um, show something new to us, to take us a step further in our, our walk with Him. And um, those are all exciting things. Uh, so we want to bathe these opportunities in prayer this morning, and we're going to break up for our congregational worship. And uh, I just want to lift up uh, the pods that are starting fresh, and, uh, and the pods that have been uh, going on. And um, I'll just take a second to plug that again, because if you're not plugged into a pod, it's, it's an amazing opportunity for God to um, just pour his love into your heart in a very practical way. Um, the hands and feet of your neighbors, uh, your Christian neighbors, your brothers and sisters, are some of the, the principal ways that God uh, can shape your life. And... Um, if you don't have that in your life, then you're missing out on, on um, what God wants to do for you. So if you're not a part of a pod, I would strongly encourage you uh, to join up. 
Uh, also, we want to pray for our, our youth group that's starting up and um, um, all of the kids who are um, stepping up into youth group, for those who are coming back, and uh, pray for the leadership, uh, that this would be a, a super fruitful time for them. Uh, we can continue to pray for our kids that are starting up um, you know, the new school year, and then pray for the sermon series that we're about to start in Zechariah. I know um, for me, it's not a book that I'm super familiar with, so I'm, I'm really excited to see um, God's good news uh, throughout this Old Testament prophets, um, his, his book. And um, just pray that God would continue to um, reveal himself to us in deeper and deeper ways uh, through this sermon series. So if you'll stand up and um, pray with your neighbors, and I'll come back up in a few minutes and um, pray together. Thank you.
God, we lift up your holy name as the only name given among men by which we must be saved. You're the only one that can take broken things and turn them into beautiful things. Your mercies are new every morning. God, you are faithful uh, to redeem, to forgive and pardon our sins because they've been paid for with a high price. Lord, we just thank you that um, we can trust in that, that promise uh, for the journey that's before us. We're grateful for a season of new starts, grateful for the hope that we have that uh, you're going to do something amazing in our lives, that we can't comprehend the plan that you have for us that you'll take all of the, the struggles of our past, our journey this far, and that you'll use it to, to take us to the next step. Lord, I lift up um, all of the different areas of ministry in our church. Lord, I'm grateful for how you're moving and working amongst uh, your people. I'm grateful for our pods and for uh, these cores of uh, believers who encourage one another each week um, through your word, uh, through holding each other accountable, through praying for one another, and through just listening, through being the hands and feet of Christ and meeting each other's needs practically. Lord, I'm so grateful for how you're using um, brothers and sisters to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. I'm grateful for how your spirit is uh, continuing to draw us closer to you as we um, pursue you uh, together, we draw closer to one another as well. It's one of the good gifts that you've given us. Lord, I just pray for those who have um, taken a hiatus from their pods this summer, that they would come back with a renewed energy, uh, that they would recommit themselves uh, to the good work that you've set before them, and that you would be um, alive and thriving in each pod. Lord, I pray for our youth group that you would rise up our students uh, to take the word of, of God and apply it to their lives and to take the love of Christ and to shine it into their community, at their schools, uh, within their families, within their circles of friends. Lord, you're raising up a generation Lord, you've made this generation for the times and you've made the times for this generation. And I know that you have begun even now uh, to rise up leaders that will shine the light of Jesus into this dark world in, in ways that we can't yet imagine. I pray, God, that this semester, this year, and our youth group uh, would be greater than we can imagine, that you would be high and lifted up that these kids would come to know you more, uh, that they would come to, to love one another well through Christ. Lord, would you rise up leaders uh, to teach and to um, be an example, a role model. God, I pray for our new sermon series. I'm so grateful for your word and how you've given us uh, an understanding of what a great and powerful God you are to redeem what is broken, to rebuild our hearts, 
on a, a firm foundation. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who are um, expositing your word, preaching through it. I pray, God, that you would be with them in their time of study and that your spirit would reveal uh, the deep truths uh, and that you would help them to share that with your people and that the flock would be uh, edified, that we would accept your word as truth, that we would apply it rightly to our lives and and allow it to uh, take us into a deeper walk with you each day. Uh, Lord, I pray for uh, Pastor David as he comes to open your word. God, I pray that you prepare each of our hearts, that you would um, bind up the enemy. Lord, that you would help us to let go of all of our distractions, that we would repent of our sins, and that we would prepare our hearts uh, for the word of God that brings life anew. Lord, would you speak through uh, Pastor David powerfully today and let your spirit move in us in ways that um, uh, call us into a deeper affection towards you and to walk uh, closer to you as we leave here and uh, take that message with us into the world that you've, you've sent us out into. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Thank you so much, Justin. Well, we're in a new series, just as Justin mentioned, Zechariah, Rebuilt Hearts, Renewed or Restored Hopes. Rebuilt Hearts, Restored Hopes. And if you want a sermon note sheet, they're on the background table, and uh, you can grab one of those, and it'll give you kind of the outline for this morning. Uh, As we begin, just a brief introduction Uh, To get us familiar with the book of Zechariah, just in case you're not very familiar with it, uh, Zechariah is the largest of the minor prophets. You know how long this book is? Somebody tell me. How many chapters? 14. Great. And in that regard, it being the longest of the minor prophets, you could say he's a major minor prophet, okay? And Zechariah is the second to the last book in our English translations in the Old Testament, and it takes about 35 minutes to read out loud. Uh, So what I want to challenge you on this week is maybe this week as we get ready to start the first chapter of Zechariah next week, maybe you could take some time individually or with somebody in your pod or with somebody in your family and maybe read the entire book of Zechariah out loud together. 35 minutes, okay? You guys want to take that challenge with me? All right, let's try that. All right. So Zechariah is said to be the most difficult of the 12 minor prophets to read and study, okay? Okay. So uh, you guys psyched about this sermon series? Yeah, all right. And one reason people say that it's the most difficult of the 12 to to study is because it is filled with apocalyptic imagery. Um, And if you're like, what in the world is apocalyptic imagery? Uh, Well, the opening chapters are full of crazy night visions, similar to the type I have when I eat chocolate before I go to bed, okay? So just read the first several chapters and you'll be like, what, this is going crazy, right? Um, And if you think it sounds a lot like the book of Revelation, you'd be right because Revelation quotes Zechariah more times than any other minor prophet. So that's saying something. Zechariah's structure is also 
It seems complicated at first glance. As one author put it, Zechariah can feel like a bowl of judgment spaghetti with a messianic meatball thrown in here and there, okay? The result is preachers rarely preach through Zechariah outside the occasional sermon overview like the one we're doing this morning. Just look on the internet and try to find somebody who's preached through the book of Zechariah. It'll be hard to find. Um, By the way, with a showing of hands, raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon from Zechariah before, just a sermon out of the book of Zechariah. Raise your hand. Everybody look around. Okay. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the book of Zechariah preached in its totality. All right, you guys ready? Let's do this. Okay. On top of all that, people often debate the pronunciation of the book. Look at it in your English Bibles. Look how it's spelled. Okay. Is it Zach? Ariah or is it Zek Ariah? Hmm. Now I've given you a conundrum, right? My seminary buddies and I have a Marco Polo and we've been talking this last couple of weeks and debating how you pronounce it. And, and I don't know really any better than when we first started debating. So I'm just going to say Zachariah, okay? Because I'm from South Carolina. There you go. All right. So why are we planning to go one chapter-ish at a time through the book of Zechariah? Well, first, We believe as a church that all scripture, yes, I said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. And that includes the book of Zechariah and Lamentations and Leviticus and you name it, right? Second, why are we planning to preach through the book of Zechariah? It's the minor prophet most quoted by New Testament authors. Did you realize that? So why is that? Why do the New Testament authors quote Zechariah the most out of all the minor prophets, the 12 of them? Why? Well, one reason I think it is, is because Zechariah is one of the easiest places in the Old Testament to see Jesus and his saving work clearly. One of the easiest. And I think that's why the authors of the New Testament quote it the most, whether we be referring to text in Zechariah like, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, or they wait out as my price 30 pieces of silver, or they will look on me, him whom they have pierced, or strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's just the start. This is a crazy, crazy stat, but there are 67 places in the New Testament where Zechariah is either quoted or alluded to. Can you believe that? 67, quoted or alluded to. So third reason why we're planning to preach through the book of Zechariah. Well, I believe the message of Zechariah is what we need today. I believe it. And I want to show you that by giving you a quick review of Israel's history. And when I say quick, I mean quick. And then a timeline leading up to Zechariah's ministry. And when I do that, my hope is that as I unpack that timeline, you will say, wow, this is the need of the moment. We need this message that Zechariah was bringing to the people of Israel. So quick snippet of Israel's history. So Israel, uh, God's people were in slavery in Egypt and God brought them out of Egyptian slavery. God gives them the law at Mount Sinai and they decide not to go into the promised land. They're like, we don't trust you for it, God. And so what do they do? They wander in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. 
And then afterwards, God's going to bring them into the promised land through Joshua. Remember, Moses is not allowed to go. And they go to have a conquest of Canaan and everything looks good. But do they complete that conquest? No, they do not. And then there's the time of Judges. I remember Kevin preached through Judges with uh, the youth group not so long ago. And that's a depressing book, right, Kevin? It's an endless cycle of sin. Not because you preached it, brother. But I'm saying it's an endless cycle of sin and idolatry from God's people, then oppression from the outside enemies of God, and then they call out to God for a rescue, a rescuer, and God sends the judge to rescue them, and then the book ends in this tragic cycle as well. After the book of Judges, there's the monarchy, right? The people of God are crying out, hey, give us a king just like the rest of the nations, right? Why? because they believe that God is not king enough, right? He's not a good enough ruler. So God gives them what they ask for, even though it's a sinful request. And he gives them Saul. Is Saul any good? Nope, he's a bad king. And then later on in God's mercy, great mercy and grace, he gives them King David, who's a man after God's own heart. But is David perfect? Nope, he's very imperfect. And then he's trying to rebuild, or sorry, he's trying to build the temple for God. And is he able to do it? Nope, who gets to do it? His son Solomon. Well, Solomon, for the majority of his life, serves and loves God, and he does a lot of things in God's power and strength. And then the rest of his life, like middle to the end, what happens? He chases after foreign gods and what else? Foreign women and all of his rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. What does God do in his discipline? He, what, what does he do, guys? He splits or divides the kingdom, right? He splits and divides the kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, that's the, the, the one of the kingdoms, like God never says anything positive about any of their kings hardly, right? I mean, it's just king after king who's rebellious and idolatrous and, and all of that. Well, in the southern kingdom, you have a few good ones, right? Like Josiah, but in the midst of it, there's still a bunch of rebellion back and forth. And so in 722, God sends the Syrian army to bring the northern kingdom into exile. You guys familiar with this, right? And then the southern kingdom continues to remain for a while and it has a few good kings. And then at the end, they follow in rebellion as well. And what happens later in 586 BC, have I lost anybody yet? 586 BC, the southern kingdom is also taken into captivity, but they're not taken into captivity by Assyria. Who are they taken into captivity by? Babylon, right? The temple, the glorious temple where God's presence dwells is completely destroyed. The Davidic king is removed from his throne. Jerusalem was bulldozed to the ground and God's chosen people were exiled from the promised land. Okay, so super sad. And you somebody tell me how long the Babylonian exile lasted roughly? How long? Roughly 70 years in totality, okay? But 50 years first in another land under another foreign ruler until this date, 538 BC. And this is a date that was prophesied by Jeremiah and Isaiah to name a few. And what happened on this date? God raised up Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, and God used him instrumentally to come and release the Jews from Babylonian captivity. Cyrus united the Persians and the Medes under his rule, conquered Babylon, absorbed all the lands that they owned into his kingdom, and then made this edict that allowed Israel to return to their land. And 
begin to reconstruct the temple that was destroyed, right? Where? In Jerusalem or in Judea, right? And you can read that in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, okay? So this is what you need to know. That building project began. So they're exiled, they're out in another foreign place, and then Cyrus gives this edict and they all return, well, not all, but partially return the first wave back to Jerusalem and people are psyched. They're excited. They're like, God prophesied this was ha- would happen through the word of God and now we're here. People are jazzed and ready for the work and it starts with great energy and optimism until what happens? Under pressure. That's what happens. <laughs> External pressures and in internal pressures that caused the building project of the temple to halt, to a grinding stop. So what internal and external pressures are we talking about? Well, just to name a few, okay? Putting up new homes and creating new subdivisions for all the returning exiles, think, Thousands and thousands of people shifting from Babylon back to Jerusalem who weren't there prior. And it's like, hey, where are we going to live? And so that work of building new homes starts. You can read about it in Haggai 1, 1 through 6. And if you read that text carefully, it'll say, you guys got so distracted about your own homes and building your own houses as you return to Jerusalem that you forgot about what? The house of God, the temple, right? So that's one of the distractions, internal uh, distractions. And then there was the pursuits of everyday life matters that led them away from their mission. It sounds very similar to 2 Timothy chapter 1 in that they got sidetracked by good things that they made ultimate. And they got sidetracked by, quote, uh, civilian affairs and had forgotten what it meant to live for their commanding officer, God or Jesus Christ, like 2 Timothy talks about. Not to mention the external pressures. What was that? They came back to the land ready, psyched about building project, and they were getting taxed like crazy from this new leader, Cyrus, and the others that followed him. And that taxation put a strain on them. Then there was the opposition from the surrounding cultures and neighborhoods. They're like, you're moving back into Jerusalem. You've been gone for 50 to 70 years plus, and now you want to come back in Jerusalem? We got our houses here. We don't want you in in this place. And so they had that opposition. You can read about that in Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. And then another external uh, option or issue was that a lot of the exiles didn't even want to come back to Jerusalem after they were released from Babylon. They're like, we good. (laughs) We're living this high life in Babylon, right? We, we don't want to return. We put down roots and our families are here and our jobs are here. And if we uproot our lives, it's gonna be difficult for us to go back for the mission of God, to do what he's called us to do. We don't wanna look different from the world around us. We're comfortable and it'll be a huge sacrifice to do what God is calling us to do in rebuilding and returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. See, the people of God had become preoccupied with securing their own worldly comforts. Does that sound about right? I'm talking about that's why I think one of the reasons why we need the book of Zechariah. They had just become preoccupied. In modern day, we haven't been called to build a new physical temple for God. And everybody said amen, right? That'd take a lot of work. But we are the temple of God, right? And what we've been called to, to is something way, way better. And that is the Great Commission, right? 
Matthew 28 says, right? We've been called to take the message of the gospel to the entire world, right? Matthew 28, and as people hear the gospel and are saved, we're called to baptize them and we're called to teach them everything that the Lord has has spoken in his word so that they might follow and love Jesus. And in that, we're called also to invest in the building up of God's people, right? His new temple where he dwells. And we're called to do that on a universal scale. And we're also called to do that on a local scale right here at Connection Fellowship. And I'm telling you, this book is for us. So after 50 years or so, Israel's back in the land in Jerusalem. Again, just a quick recap. They start off strong. They immediately rebuild the altar in Ezra 3. You can find it there. They laid the foundations or the footers for the temple. You can find that in Ezra 3 as well. And then comes the inward and outward pressure, and they give up on working on the temple. You can find that in Ezra 4. And they stop. You know how long they stop? 17 years. They do nothing. 17 years. They're all jazzed, psyched about getting back into the land. They get a little inward and outward pressure, and then they stop the work of God for 17 years. And for 17 years, you're walking through Jerusalem, you're looking over where the, the temple was being uh, rebuilt, and the foundation's just laying there, and it's in ruins. And every time you walk past the temple, it's a reminder that you've given up on the mission of God. And the earlier prophets had promised them a glorious future. That's what the earlier prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel had promised them. And now they're walking by the temple for 17 years and looking at it in in ruins. And they're sitting in a day of small things, to quote Zechariah 4.10. See, Zechariah is written to a discouraged, distracted, and disobedient people a discouraged, a distracted, and a disobedient people. But I don't know about you, but in the Christian life, I often can feel discouraged, distracted, and disobedient. And I just want to pause at the beginning of this sermon series and ask you, how is your spiritual life? Do any of these words describe your spiritual life right now? Do you feel apathetic? Do you feel deflated? Do you feel stalled out or stagnant? Do you feel like you're cycling the same as you did 17 years prior? Maybe this sermon series is for you. Do you feel overwhelmed by the world around you? Is social media and new school schedules distracting you from God and knowing him and loving him and being on his mission? Do you stand personally in need of spiritual revival and encouragement? So did those who Zachariah was preaching to. And this is a reminder. This sermon is a reminder to us that it's time for second chances, right? This is a reminder that God is in the business of second chances. He's not like, you just sat idle for 17 years after I just miraculously delivered you from Babylonian exile and you just gave up on the work. I mean, he, God could have shut it down completely. But this series is a reminder that God is merciful, like Justin was saying at the beginning, and that his mercies are new every morning and that it is time now for hearts to be changed and hopes to be restored. So I got you up to the exiles being back into the land and them just sitting discouraged and stalled out for 17 years. 
on that building project of the temple, and then in steps Zechariah. That's 520 BC. This is shortly after Haggai began his prophetic work, okay? And Zechariah and Haggai not only prophesied at the same time, which happens in the Old Testament, two prophets will prophesy at the same time, but there was something really unique with Zechariah and Haggai's ministry. They not only prophesied at the same time, but they prophesied in the same place, Jerusalem. I don't think that that ever happens. And they were like tag team wrestling prophets, okay? That's what they were like, taking this message to the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And each had their specific focus. So Haggai primarily was encouraged, uh, encouraging the Jews who returned from exile to rebuild the temple, okay? So it's that physical building, that was his primary focus. And Zechariah primarily encouraged them to return to God so he could rebuild their hearts, Okay, you see the difference? One's more of an external thing, like doing the mission, and then they're kind of an overlap. But Zechariah is really pushing people down to their hearts. They're saying, hey, you need to get back to God. You need to go back to God. That's the whole problem. If you don't want to do what God says, the problem is underneath, right? The problem is way underneath in your heart. And so Zechariah's main focus, I think, is, hey, we want to see God do something that you can't do. And this this title for the sermon series, Zechariah, is just a reminder out the gate of two things, okay? We have heart problems. I'm not talking about physical heart problems like indigestion or something like that. I'm talking about we have heart problems. We have issues where we love things that don't honor God. We have things, issues where we love other things before God. We have issues where if our heart is like, or our heart is like a house in certain rooms behind the drywall, there's mold, there's black mold, right? And in certain rooms behind the drywall or behind the floorboards, it's rotten and it's eaten up. And this sermon series out the gate is saying, we've got sin issues. We've got love issues. We've got idolatry issues. We've got issues where we don't love God like we all, and it manifests itself in the way we live in community. But there's hope, and I'm gonna get to it in a minute. And this title, Out the Gate, is also a reminder that we have hope issues. And what I mean by that is we tie our hopes to everything else but God. We tie our hopes to new beginnings. Like my school, my kids are going back to school or we're starting a fresh sermon series and we tie our hopes to that. That's gonna be what really gets me out of this mess that I'm in with God. That's gonna really make me happy in life when my kids go off to school. And I I talk to people and that's what they say. A lot of kids, parents who are sending their kids to public school, they're like, my salvation is here, it's arrived. My kids aren't gonna be here anymore, you know? And we tie our hopes to politics, and the people in Zechariah's day were, were in danger of doing that same thing. We're going to have a new start, a fresh beginning. And this sermon series is saying we got heart issues and we got hope issues. But Christ is enough. Christ is enough. See, what you see here in the book of Zechariah is that the message is not superficial. It's not just about returning to wealth and temporal prosperity. It's about resting on God's unchanging truth. And this is what you see laid out from the beginning of Zechariah all the way to the end. This is the truth. God is sovereign over the nations. God is personally present with his people. 
God's Messiah is coming to inaugurate his kingdom at the cost of his life. And one day he will consummate that kingdom perfectly at his second return. And as one author put it, the book of Zechariah's most foundational purpose is to lift the eyes. That's a recurring statement, especially in the beginning portion of the visions. To lift your eyes, to lift your eyes off of what? Off of yourself and onto God, to lift your eyes so that the people of God can lift their eyes from the discouraging circumstances they're in, right? Everything's not lining up like they want. They don't have the heart for God like they want. To lift your eyes off of yourself onto God and his bigger purposes and picture for the world. You notice I didn't say your life. (laughs) Because what happens is when you lift your eyes off little old you and cast them on the God who's sovereign over the nations, who's got this plan that he came up with before the beginning of the world, and it involves Jesus coming to save us and to him to renew all things in Jesus Christ. That's a vision that changes everything, right? This is why I entitled our sermon series, Zechariah, Rebuilt Hearts, Restored Hopes. Along the way in this book, we're gonna be reminded that rebuilt hearts, if you stand in need of a spiritual renovation, Rebuilt hearts only comes through the transforming presence of God's spirit. That's the only way it comes. And restored hopes ultimately only come through the sacrificial death of the Messiah who will establish his kingdom and save his people. So we've looked a little bit about an introduction to the book. We've looked at kind of just a breakdown a a breakdown of the background of the book or the context of the book. And finally, I want us to look at an overview or a breakdown of the 14 chapters of the book. And if I haven't lost you so far, that's good. Maybe I'll lose you here, okay? So we'll see. All right, so the, the book has 14 chapters and it can be broken down in several ways. And I prefer this way of breaking it down into three main headings. And I'm gonna give you some slides in just a minute, okay? Give you some slides in just a minute, okay? So this is the three main headings. The first one are the eight visions in the first half of the book, okay? And that's chapter one through six. And those eight visions that take us six chapters to tell, they happened all in one night. And then... About two years later, the next heading, the next main heading, are three sermons that Zechariah preached to the people of Israel, okay? And that's covered in chapter six through eight. And then finally, at the end of the book, probably really the largest section of the book, that's chapter nine through 14, there are two oracles that I'll tell you about. So we got eight visions, okay, how many sermons? Three sermons from Zechariah, and then it closes with what? Two oracles. Peace sign. Thank you. All right, so here's the deal. First eight visions. I'm going to walk through just a little bit as I'm giving you the over, overview of how the book's broken down, okay? So visions are images from God seen by Zechariah and then explained through an angelic interpreter, okay? And what's interesting is that many scholars say these visions 
are set up in a chiastic structure. Has anybody glazed over yet? Chiasm, what in the world? All right, which is very, very common in Hebrew literature. So if you're not familiar with chiasm, I'm gonna tell you really quick what chiasm is. Listen up. It's a literary device where a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result is like a mirror effect, okay? So if, I'm making this up right now on the fly, but if Zechariah is a chiasm in the vision section, it would be like, let's see if we can do it. A, B, C, D, E, C, B, A. Is that right? I think that's right, okay. So here's the thing. They mirror in the vision section, okay? So you can put this up. It should be the first one. So chap, uh, vision one and vision eight are a pair, okay? Vision two and vision seven mirror each other. See, we're working our way in to the visions, okay? So one and eight are a pair. Two and seven are a pair. Three and six are a pair. And then four and five, the middle is a pair. And the cool thing about the Hebrew scriptures is sometimes the climax of a story in the Hebrew scriptures is at the end, like similar to the way we tell a story. But sometimes in Hebrew scriptures, the climax is in the middle, which is different from the way we do it. And that's how this chiasm works in the visions. So here's the deal. Here's the, here's the breakdown very quickly of how this works, okay, in the vision section. One in eight, that is the vision of the horsemen and the myrtle trees, and then the four chariots, they pair. And what they have in common is this, peace. That's what they both have in common. They're on the front end and on the end, uh, the back end, and they have this in common. So vision one is about temporal peace resulting from the fact that Persia came in and conquered over Babylon, and then everybody's got this, this temporal peace. And then the eighth vision that pairs with it, it's about the eternal peace that ultimately only comes through Messiah returning, okay? So vision one and eight are about what? Peace, okay? Haven't lost you yet. Vision two and seven, that's the four horsemen and the four craftsmen. And vision seven is the woman in the basket. You got questions? I got answers later, okay? There's a woman in a basket. They pair and they're both about what? You tell me, cheat sheet, sin. Vision two is a reminder of Israel's past sin that led them into Babylon. And vision seven is a promise of the removal of Israel's sin in the future, okay? So they're both about sin. Vision three and six, they pair. Vision three is the man with the measuring line or the tape measurer. <laughs> and vision six is the flying scroll. And they pair because they're both about what? You tell me. Jerusalem, okay. And what do they have in common? Well, they both are references to the city of Jerusalem through this language, you can see the measuring line or the tape measurer, okay? And vision three is about God's glory and presence to protect his people in that city of Jerusalem. And vision six is about God's glory to judge and purge wickedness from that city. Okay, and then we have the center of the chiasm. So in your brain, if you're a Jew, you're saying, Bing, bing, bing. This is the most important part. This is what ties all the visions together. This is the centerpiece of this section. So what does vision four and five talk about? Well, vision four is about the vision of Joshua, the high priest. And vision five is about the golden lampstand. We're talking about the type of lampstand that burns in the temple that looks like a menorah. 
and the two olive trees. And so what do they have in common? What's the answer? God's grace. I said in Christ, but God's grace. And I just want to give you a little snippet to get the prime pumped and get you hungry for when we get there to that vision. But vision, the vision four, Joshua, the high priest, as the section opens up, is symbolically wearing Israel's sin as he's been being condemned by Satan. Okay, that's what's happening in the opening. And then Joshua, who's representing our sin and Israel's sin, he is given clean vestments, right? Clean clothing to stand before God and Satan, his accuser, and to wear clean vestments. Isn't that a pretty cool picture? A clean robe. See, Zechariah 3, 4 says, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And vision 4 becomes a reminder of grace. What is grace? Anybody know what grace is? What's grace? Undeserved favor, right? It becomes a reminder of God's grace, specific grace, God's forgiving grace that only comes to us ultimately through the shed blood of Jesus, our coming Messiah, which Zechariah will talk about later on in the book. Chapter five, or sorry, not chapter five, but vision five, the two olive trees. What are they doing in that vision? They're supplying to this elaborate gold lamp oil and the trees in that vision represent Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, who are leading the temple rebuilding efforts, okay? So where's the grace in that, in that vision? Well, they realize that they're not gonna be able to do it in their own strength. They're like, the people don't really care. They're not on board with this. They've been not doing it for 17 years. There's an impossibility here. And so they realize that in that moment. And that's why Zechariah says this in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, not by power, but what? You guys know? But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And in that moment, in that vision, it doesn't become a reminder of God's forgiving grace, like Joshua the high priest. But in that moment, it becomes a reminder of God's what? transforming grace in a heart. If this rebuilding project is gonna happen, if hearts are gonna be rebuilt, you know what we're gonna need? The spirit of the living God at work. And that becomes the mantra of Joshua and Zerubbabel as they begin. So here it is. What reality do the first three visions flow into? And what reality do the last three visions flow out from? The answer is God's undeserved grace for his people. Two more headings and then we'll be done. The second heading after the visions, and you can throw this up there, guys, is the three sermons. You got that on the slides? Michael is, oh, there he is, okay. I can't see where Brett go. Is he better? Oh, there he is. Okay, turtle, okay. So here's the three sermons. Each of Zachariah's sermons start in chapter 6, 9, chapter 7, 1, and chapter 8, 1, with this phrase, and the word of the Lord came. And chapter 6 is Zechariah's 
crown and temple sermon, okay? And what happens in that sermon is it picks up the themes of the central visions, chapter four and five, and the unexpected thing happens. Priest and king are two offices that are kept separate throughout the Old Testament. And then in this book, they collide into one, never to be done before. And they collide into one and are joined together in the same person. And Joshua, the high priest, is given a crown and presented as a symbol of who? The future Messiah, who will be both priest and king, right? Chapter 7 is Zechariah's true fasting sermon. And that's chapter 7, 1 through 14. What happens in that sermon? that Zechariah is preaching to the people. A group of Israelites come and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask Zechariah if it's time to stop grieving and if God's kingdom is coming right now. And this is what he does. Zechariah reminds them, he reminds them that they have not been faithful to God and they have rebelled him against him. And that's what led them into exile in the first place. That sounds pretty sad. And then chapter eight is Zechariah's coming peace sermon. And that's on the, the next page. And that is chapter eight, one through 23. And the unexpected happens again. God's promise to give undeserving prosperity in the future to his people who don't deserve it. He says in those sections that he will mark them with faithfulness, righteousness, and cheerful feast. So this is how those three sermons build on each other. I know this is a lot coming in very quick, But chapter six, that first sermon, Joshua, the priest king, shows us the source of God's grace. Who's that ultimately gonna be in? Jesus, our true priest and king. Chapter seven, the second sermon, it's a description of Israel's past sins and what they did to fail to land them in exile in the first place. And it becomes a sermon about this, that every person desperately is in need of God's grace. And then the final uh, sermon, chapter eight, is an explanation of the lavish grace that God gives people who don't deserve grace at all. And it reminds us of Ephesians chapter one, right? What we've been reading in our reading plan. Because God gives this lavish grace through Christ on his people that he should not adopt, but that he sets his undeserved affection on before the foundations of the world were laid. What else do the three sermons have in common? Well, they have in common the altar call. You guys remember altar calls? Three sermons, Zachariah's preaching, and they are rooted in grace. But this altar call that Zachariah gives in each of those three sermons is very, very similar because he challenges each one in the community in Jerusalem who have returned. He challenges them to be a people who are shaped by that grace. He calls them to justice and peace. And he says, you have heart issues and I want you to be shaped so that you can one another well and you can love each other well with the love of God. And he brings that altar call at the end of each one, 6, 15, 7, 9, chapter 8, 16 through 17. And he says, hey, let the grace of God that's central in this book and central in these three sermons, let it shape you on the inside so that you'll be a community of love for God and love for each other and peace. And one of those sections is summed up like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
That's the message of Zechariah. Finally, the third and finally, the two oracles. You can throw that up there. And I'm gonna take six chapters at the end of the book and put them in two headings, two oracles, and do it really quick, okay? Two oracles. So oracles, in case you were wondering, you're like, what is an oracle? I saw something on Jason and the Argonauts one time that I watched in the movie, and I can't remember exactly what oracles are. Well, oracles are God's communicated word through prophets, specifically in regards to future events. So here are the two oracles that span six chapters to end the book. First oracle, the coming humble king who will be rejected. The coming humble king who will be rejected. Who's that? Jesus, right? Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Second oracle, Zechariah gets to see into the future and what's coming. When he looks in the future, he not only sees the humble king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and the people going crazy that he's bringing salvation. That's the first advent of Jesus. But when Zechariah looks into the future and sees the last three chapters of the book, he also sees the coming shepherd king who will be pierced through for the transgressions of his people, Zechariah 12 through 14. Zechariah 12, 10, look, Again, the whole book is pointing back. You've got a heart issue. You've got a hope issue. It's only gonna be overcome by the grace of God in Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way to get rebuilt hearts. It's the only way to get restored and renewed hopes. And listen how this last text ends. Zechariah 12, 10. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, and pleas for mercy. That means your heart needs renovation and it's broken and wicked in so many ways. And only God can come and pour out his spirit to the degree that you repent truly from the heart. And your love for God changes. And he says, he will pour out that spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they've pierced, so that when you look at the Messiah whom you pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. True repentance coming. The possibility for rebuilt hearts and restored hopes for them to come off the the politics and the temple physical building being built and our homeschooling efforts and all of that stuff and to have true hope in Jesus, the one we've pierced. And the ending of the book, the main themes woven throughout the book in those oracles is that the humble shepherd king will save his people. The humble shepherd king will come like a lion and defeat and judge his enemies. And the humble shepherd king will establish his kingdom perfectly forever. That's where the book ends. So conclusion and final thoughts. I read this and it's not mine. And the ideas come from two pastors that I was reading as they were summarizing the book of Zechariah. And I think it's a great way to end. They point out that it's interesting in 14 chapters, which is a lot of reading, most of the commands or imperatives are not geared around us doing something for God. Actually, there's only really one or maybe two places in the entire book where you get like a really straightforward command in the Hebrew, like God saying, you do this. There's only like one or two places in the entire book. And they point that out. There are exceptions to the rule, right? Because God's people are called to return to him in the opening chapters or repent. 
Zechariah is called to be still before the Lord and all flesh be silent above the, before the Holy One. And then like I mentioned in Zechariah's three sermons, God's people are called in detail to love God with their hearts and be a faithful community. But these pastors point out that the commands mentioned most often are these commands. Know, listen, and see. Know, listen, and see. And you say for like a type A, do it yourself, get it done type of person, those are hard commands to, to stomach, right? Know, listen, and see. Through eight night visions and six full chapters to end the book of future prophecy, God is putting the focus not on what we do for him, but what he will do for us. That's the message of the gospel. As one pastor said, God gives out enormous life-changing promises in the book of Zechariah, God will rule the world. Regardless of what our broken hearts are doing, regardless of where our false hopes are tied to, God will rule the world. He will judge his people's enemies. He will dwell with his people and protect them. He will send his Messiah and cleanse his people from their sins. He will give his people new life and, and, and come to dwell their hearts. He will restore This means the basis of our hope is not ourselves. This is what makes Zechariah a gospel. A gospel. Our hopes are not in ourselves. It is in God, who he is and what he has done and what he's promised to do. Another pastor says something very similar. The truth is sometimes the point of a biblical message isn't really to tell us to do anything so much as it is to leave us thunderstruck at what God has done for us. That bothers some of us sometimes, of course, because we naturally want to act. But then again, the whole message of the gospel is that we can't act for our own salvation. God does it all for us. That's the message of Zechariah. And my prayer is that as we read him and listen to him, our hearts will again stand in awe of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the crowned priest and the slaughtered and resurrected king. See, Zechariah begins with God's wake-up call to his sinful people, chapter one. The final chapters of Zechariah remind us that the coming Messiah is coming to save and redeem his people by being struck and pierced for their sins. And then the book ends, the last verse, with this promise that says, the Lord will establish his perfect rule over all the earth. This is the truth that empowers rebuilt hearts and restored hopes. And as we conclude, I'm just asking you, is there something that you need to talk to the Lord about in regards to your heart and where your hopes are tied? And would you take this opportunity in this moment as Eric comes forward to lead us in song? And would you cry out to the Lord just prayers of repentance and prayers of thanksgiving and ask him to rebuild your heart, so to speak, and restore your hopes only in Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much for your word from Zechariah. Lord, I know it's a lot (laughs) to skim over, but God, we thank you for this reminder from the front of the book to the end about your amazing grace. And I think it's so cool that we read Ephesians 1 even this morning 
to begin our reading plan for this week for pods. And Lord, that we had a chance to look at Zach, uh, Psalm 73 and how in all of those texts of scripture, including Zechariah, we see the amazing reminder of your undeserved grace and love towards sinners. And Lord, that's our hope. Lord, we stand amazed at who you are and what you've done. And I pray that that would cause us to not be discouraged and distracted anymore and that we would move forward on your mission, Lord, to see people come to know you and, Lord, our mission to make you known in all that we say and do. Lord, we love you and pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 We serve a good God who calls us to change and refinement and empowers us for it and gives us the opportunity to serve him as a result. If, uh, if you want to stand as we uh, get started with reflecting on the sermon together and singing out from that, um, first thing we're going to do together is read from the screens. There will be a section... It's kind of a call and response reading, but it's Psalm 84. All the words from it are just straight through Psalm 84. So it's just broken up into like a leader section, and everyone section, that kind of thing. But Brett, if you can throw it on the screen, we're going to read through this because this is the psalm from which our next song comes, Better Is One Day. And it also, in this psalm, speaks of the goodness of God. And as we think of our need for him, our need for having both salvation in the first place and rebuilt hearts along the way and the promise of hope, he is so good. So, all right, let's, let's read through this together. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. How lovely is your dwelling place, 
Oh Lord Almighty, for my soul longs and even faints for you. For here my heart is satisfied within your presence. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts Better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, than thousands elsewhere. One thing I ask and I would see To see your beauty To find you in the place your glory dwells One thing I ask and I would see to see your beauty, to find you in the place your glory dwells. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day courts and thousands elsewhere better is one day in your courts better is one day in your house better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere my heart and flesh cry out for you the living God your spirit's water to my soul I've tasted and I've seen, come once again to me. I will draw near to you, I will draw near to you. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, than thousands elsewhere. And that's the promise that we will have not only one day, but thousands of days, which will be thousands and thousands of times better 
than elsewhere as we live forever in the presence of God. As we sing this next song, God, you're so good. Uh, Brett, can you hold the bridge, the I am blessed part? This song declares of God's amazing love and the, the impact for us. So when we get to the bridge and it's singing, we're singing this stuff. And this is not because it's all about us. It's because this is what God has given us. It's because when, when the verse uh, 3 says, Should this life bring suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me. That's what this is. I am blessed. I am called. I am healed. I am whole. I am saved in Jesus' name. That's what he has done for us. That's what we get to remember and rejoice in. me the kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserving God you're so good God you're so so good you're so good to Filled with your power for the 
glory of Jesus' name. I am blessed, I am called, I am healed, I am whole, I am saved in Jesus' name. Highly favored, anointed, and filled with your power for the glory of Jesus' name. Think on his goodness to you. What can you praise him for? And should this life bring suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me, both now and forever. God, your soul. God, you're so good. 
God, you're so good, you're so good to me. And as we reflect on that and God's goodness, that is the hope that we have. He is good to us now and always forever unchanging. Caring for us, loving us, providing for us, calling us out of the weakness and the turning away from him that actually hurts us, breaking our hearts of clinging to things in this earth that actually are bad for us, breaking our idols so that we can find joy in him. So as we turn to this week and as we rely on him, Connection, would you receive this text from 1 Thessalonians 5 as a benediction over you, as a prayer for you, as a way to take what we have heard this morning and flesh this out this week in the spirit of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You are loved and you are sent. Have a great week rejoicing in the goodness of our Father.